Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 142, Odyssey. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher D. Philippus. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And welcome back, one and all, to the latest meeting of the Quantum Leap Podcast Book Club. Today, we will be discussing book 10 in the novel series, Odyssey by Barbara Walton. Who wants to do the honors of reading the cover blurb for Odyssey to refresh everybody's memory? Oh, it's going to be me. I got it ready. No, I got it. I have the book right next to me. I'm not prepared for it this time. All right, here, I got it. Will a leaper learn his lessons before it's too late? In 1983, in a small town in upstate New York, Sam Beckett has a problem. He's leaped into a brilliant but troubled boy named Sean O'Connor, who's part of a gifted students program called Olympics of the Mind. The program is about to be cancelled, and if it is, Ziggy says terrible things will happen to Sean and his friends as they grow up. But how can a 12-year-old boy put right what is about to go wrong? In 1999, in the center of the secret project known as Quantum Leap, Al Calavici has an even bigger problem. The real Sean O'Connor is in detention in the waiting room, and he's determined to escape. Quantum Leap Odyssey, all-new adventure, first time in print. Another kind of lie, isn't it? <laughs> all these, all these, these blurbs have slight lies in the pitches. <laughs> isn't that the point of cover blurbs, though? I mean, don't they always twist the truth a little bit in the interest I, of some, whatever the print version of clickbait is? I guess it's kind of the equivalent of uh, when you go in media rays, you know, and you start and then it's like, oh, how did we get here? And then <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. That's so lazy. 24 hours <laughs> earlier. Yeah. It's like, oh, I couldn't think of a way to, to do a compelling beginning to the episode. So let me go to the high point from Act 3, spoil that for you, and then tell you how we got there. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I got in this situation. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Uh, there's a brief scene where Sean gets out of the waiting room, which is kind of interesting, but it's not really the point of the book. It's, it's not really about that. You need to sell. You need to sell these things. And, you know, the person in charge of writing the back cover blurb, that's their job. So I guess they have. Sure. I even tried out for that job at a publisher once and they never, you know, they never called me back. Ew. They never gave me the time of day. Like You don't know how to go clickbaity enough. I guess not. Well, and 
they pulled a dirty trick on me because I went in and they're just like, so what do you like? What do you like to read? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a science fiction author and I love science fiction and fantasy and genre stuff would be great. And they gave me a fucking romance novel to write a blurb for. And I was like, you sons of bitches. Uh-huh. Well, they, oh, that, so that was clever. the test though. You, you can't just yeah. be things you're interested in. And apparently I failed it spectacularly because here I am on mic instead of some big mogul editor out in New York City. So. Is there editor? the ones that write the blurbs? No, but have you ever seen the movie but Coming to America? Could exactly. it be the start of something? Oh, I see. Yeah. I'm like Louis Anderson, see? You know, I started on cleanup just like you guys. But now, see, I'm washing lettuce. Soon I'll be on fries. Then the grill. A year or two, I make assistant manager. And that's where the big bucks start rolling in. <laughs> Why don't you go and try out somewhere else and just walk in there and say, yeah, I'm a big fan of romance and just hope they do the same thing. Well, yeah, I mean, had I known like an idiot, I would have been like, oh, I love Regency romance, whatever the fuck that is. And um, <laughs> and I've dropped two F-bombs now, so maybe I'm more bitter about this distant memory than yeah. I had. Uh, see, this book is about, you know, coming of age and it's bringing up all stuff from when we were coming of age. Ooh. Do you need to lie down on a Perspex table and talk to Al about this? <laughs> I didn't know I needed to talk to somebody about it, but apparently I do. Barbara Walton, you're so sneaky. You're so sly. You got into my headspace. I will say that your summaries of the episodes of the podcast are always very good. So just saying, you could have you yeah. been good at that job in another life. I feel like you're twisting the knife just a little bit more. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't know what they lost. We acknowledge you're talented. We just don't want you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You might be making the same amount of bucks uh, podcasting as you would <laughs> the back blurbs. <laughs> but is he happy, Allison? Is he happy? He's drudgery doing this job. <laughs> I just wouldn't have a microphone because I wouldn't be able to afford it if I was making the same money as I make podcasting, which is to say... <laughs> Well, we're able to afford a Mata microphone, so. Yeah, no, no. (laughs) Now that we, but yeah, getting that first microphone would have been a heavy lift. I would have had to donate some blood or something. Maybe sell sell off some, uh, oh, I could make some macrame. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know how to macrame. I'd have to teach myself to macrame, but I think we're getting off topic here. Hey, Odyssey. Do we want to talk about this book? I, you know what? That's that's a good question. I am very curious to know what you guys thought of this book because, as usual, my life is so hectic. I read it today. I literally just <laughs> finished it 15 minutes before we got on mic. So it is very fresh in my mind. But I'm, I don't think this one's come up in any of our errant discussions about the novels. And I'm just – I'm super excited to hear what you guys have to say about it. So um, why don't we do initial impressions? AP, what did you think of Odyssey? I give Odyssey a solid, okay. Uh, If this was an episode of the show, it would be one I wouldn't really think of too often. But I do think it was written pretty well. I did like the flow of it and the characterization. It just didn't really grab me that much. The only thing I was kind of uh, mad about, I guess, is that uh, at the beginning, there was a bunch of quotes of other books, and I was having flashbacks to the wall and just quotes from military (laughs) manuals. So I just didn't read it. Did I miss anything important in that part? Um, no, it's much, it's much more, I think, about like, um, education and sort of, um, what it means, uh, to educate different people and how different people absorb education, things like that. But this, right. as, yeah, because that was one of the main themes of this book was education. But Matt, what were your initial impressions? 
I'm not a big fan of the autobiography genre, and particularly when it's about somebody I've never heard of called Barbara Walton. Um, <laughs> I'm sure her childhood was very interesting to her. And actually, she got a pretty good book out of it. Touch self-indulgent, maybe? Maybe? But it has its moments. All right, all right. I think that those are both very fair points. It did feel very autobiographical to me as well when I was reading it. But for all that, I enjoyed this book much more than I remembered enjoying it the first time. And I think that has to do with Barbara's command of the characters and the fact that she's just a pretty good writer. So I felt like this book had captured Sam and Al very well in my estimation. Yeah, I think the dialogue flowed really nicely. Mm. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I want to say. There was an ease of dialogue. There was an ease of, of narrative. There was just, it was just a well-written book, well-put-together book. So I, like you guys, I was just like, do I want to read about a bunch of gifted kids? I mean, this is essentially a young adult novel uh, set in the Quantum Leap universe. And mm -hmm. I was kind of dreading it. But the second I got to know Sean a little bit in the waiting room, I really enjoyed his character. And then all of the gifted kids stood out to me uh stood out to me with with specific strengths so if we maybe should i know the cover blurb is is a little bit um condensed but in essence this book is about that gifted program that sean's a part of and while they're not focusing on sean in the waiting room with al they're focusing on sam with all the rest of the kids that are in the program and the kids have actually you know pretty substantial roles it's very fleshed out so we get to know a little bit about each kid we get to know about their home lives we get to know their personalities and i think they all stand out as individuals so i wasn't expecting to enjoy that part of the story i was expecting to get through that part of the story and <laughs> in my in my opinion that became much more engaging than i had anticipated or that i had remembered so i was curious to know what you thought of that i have some more thoughts on that but i want to know if, if you guys had the same sort of dread the same sort of experience where do you stand on that part of it it's funny because i i remember that when I, I first read this a few years back um just going into it blind i really liked it and i think I, I don't know what it was that changed this time. I, I, I guess I have the exact opposite experience of you, Chris. I, I went into this thinking, I remember this being a good book. And then I just couldn't find that much to grab onto. And you're right, it, it's it's a young adult book. And maybe just this week, I wasn't in the young adult frame of mind. I can't critique Barbara Walton too much for what she was trying to do and what she was trying to achieve, because she, she did achieve that well. Yeah, I think um, I felt the length of this novel. Uh, because it it just wasn't a story I wasn't I was very interested in, but I think it was written very well as a quantum leap story. It's the one I think out of all the ones that we've read so far that feels the most like a classic leap from the show. Um, it yeah. feels like something you would have seen there. Uh, I, I feel like the stuff at the project was integrated really well with the stuff uh, on the leap. Uh, I liked the dialogue. I felt like it felt very true to the characters. Uh, I liked how the people at the project were used. I just didn't really care about the kids at all. <laughs> when, when it got to this, when it got to the sections where it described each kid talking to their parent or guardian or whatever or their home life, uh, I skimmed it or didn't read it. I'm going to be honest. I didn't. 
really feel like I miss too much. <laughs> but I don't want that to be a knock on Barbara Walton. I think it's just personally, like, uh, I said this before, there was 30 pages missing from my book because of a misprint. Once it gets to page 182, it suddenly becomes page 55 and then continues until 30 pages and, and then uh, somewhere in the book. I don't know what that nightmare, why they explained or what they explained the nightmare as or whatever, but uh, I don't know. I, I didn't really uh, look at the uh, I didn't look at the digital copies that we have to see what happened in those 30 pages and I, I wasn't too broken up about it <laughs> I definitely want to pick up on the point that you just made because I, I felt the same way about the fact that this felt a lot more like classic televised quantum leap it's the first of the books I think that hasn't really made use of the printed word to be able to do big set pieces or multiple different locations. Uh, it just keeps it small and low budget feeling, despite the fact that it's a book and it, it could go big. It doesn't. And I, I like it for that. And I definitely love the, um, the project stuff. Yeah. I was reminded a lot of, um, one of my favorite episodes is Return of the Evil Leaper because of the stuff that Al's got in the waiting room. And this, this has very much shades of that. Yeah, um, the stuff I cared most about in this one was Al and Sean. I didn't care that much about the leap, to be honest. I feel like it was more about the Al and Sean scenes, uh, but maybe that's because I, I paid more attention when I read those. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to say, Allison, I think that you did yourself a disservice, and I understand why you did it. I mean, if you're not interested, you're not interested. But I feel like, you know, as a reader, I bring to a book a responsibility to at least give the author a chance with what it is they're trying to say or do, right? So sure. even though I might have that initial barrier to entry where uh, do I want to get invested in these characters? It's just like, well, then what, if I don't try, why am I reading the book? And um, I realized, okay, I know why I'm reading this book. We're doing a podcast about it. But at the same time, I feel like it's even more important for me personally to try and invest myself in it. I mean, I, I have read this book before. Yeah, just, I know. Just to clarify, I did <laughs> I read it the first time through. <laughs> Outside of those 30 pages, I've never read. But <laughs> that's not my fault. I'll, I'll have to send you a copy. I'll, I'll okay. send you those 30 pages. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do mimeographs. We'll send you. We'll, they'll be in the mails shortly. And we'll do, a, we'll do an addendum to this pod. We'll do Odyssey B. Yeah. And I'll be like, I completely, I, I love the book now. <laughs> Actually, I'm making it seem like I hated it. I really didn't. I just kind of, I know what I'm interested in or what I'm not. And I, I, I've read this before, so. Yeah, and I'm going to say it's fair enough. And in the sense that, I mean, that was all just flavor. That was all helping bring these kids to life as characters in their own right. I, I read the Tina stuff. I read the Tina stuff. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I mean, well, let's talk about that right now because that's that's that was the twist, right? Um, one of the kids, just so you know, uh, everybody out there listening, if you haven't read the book in a while, Sean's friends were Sarah Easton, who was a shy, dorky girl, Peter Pigeon Janowski, who was kind of the geeky kid who lived with his grandma, Johnny Mintz, who was actually cool with a cooler older brother, and Chrissy Martinez, who I knew from page one, paragraph one, was Tina. Christina yeah. Martinez, blah, blah, blah. Um, did you guys, when you read it the first way through, did you count to that right away like I did? I don't think I did. I feel like I did, but I don't remember. Uh, I certainly knew this time around. And I feel like when you have a twist in a story, you need to have it be still entertaining when you read it back. And I guess I, I was interested in... Uh, 
what was going on in Tina's life, but I'm not really sure the story capitalized on it very much. Like, it's it's the very last paragraph, basically, where they say, like, oh, it was Tina all along. But it just kind of makes Al seem dumb or the project seem dumb or incurious that they never yeah. want to know who this girl is. Like, it could be important to the leap, but they never really look into it that hard. So it doesn't, I don't know, it just wasn't a very interesting way to go about it. And I, I don't know, I didn't really want to see a bunch of uh, scenes with uh, Sam and an 11-year-old girlfriend. It, it, this was yeah. a, <laughs> prevalent through this book. And, you know, the fact she wants to be more adult than she is, which is, it fits with Tina's character. But you are, like, reading scenes where a little girl is talking about, like, her boobs and stuff like that. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, I, uh, yeah. Yes. Uh <laughs> I I can't re- it was so long ago that I read this the first time I think I probably was surprised by the Tina revelation at the end but to me a, a twist has to it has to be a shock for it to be worth it uh, just saying oh this this character is someone that we also kind of know from other expanded fiction it wasn't jarring enough it's not it wasn't a twist it was just a fact that came late nothing was <laughs> Nothing, nothing was changed by the fact that we knew it at the end of the book versus at the start. Except that if we knew it at the start, we could have followed along and said, "Okay, this is the story of Tina." Just as yeah. one of the one of the later books does the story of Gushy, although that again it holds it back a little bit, but at least not right till the end. There's just there's no reason. Yeah, I think like it would have been more interesting to have adult Tina involved in this story. This does tell us the most I think we ever find out about Tina. So there is interesting things about her character in this. Um, Just to to leave it as a twist, I'm not really sure if it was necessary. But I mean, it was interesting to see like what was her childhood like, uh, especially considering the show gave her like two lines and one appearance. So... (laughs) Yeah, 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 and I kind of feel the same way in the sense that Matt, it made no difference. The only reason I think that they wrote around it, that Barbara wrote around it completely, because then this would have been a complete Tina novel, and maybe that's not the books that she wanted to write, and maybe, maybe she was asked to put in some kind of twist, or maybe it was just a fun idea she had. But then she had to write around why Tina's not back at the project, yes, because it makes it very problematic. So they have the conceit in the beginning where Ziggy tells Tina that you have to go on vacation because you're going to forfeit that time and Tina's like I just took a vacation five months ago why do I have to go again no Ziggy I just say I say you have to go so in my in, in my head even though they never address it in the book Ziggy already figured out that this is Tina and that mm-hmm. you know mm. it's yeah but Ziggy didn't do that with Al exactly the times, it's happened multiple times with Al at this point so but it's the only thing that makes it makes sense in in the fiction of the book as presented to us. Ziggy obviously knows and is keeping it from them for some reason, maybe because it's too close to the reality that they all share. And again, it contradicts what we see in the series. Of course, you know, we saw Bingo in the waiting room. There was no issue with that, right? And uh, even young Sam was in the waiting room at some point, even though we never got mm-hmm. to see him back there uh, on screen. So why would it be such a big deal for a relatively minor player like Tina to be included in that legacy of characters leaping into each other's lives or something? And and I guess, it, although Tina wouldn't have been back in and Sam would have had, had to lep, leapt into her. It, it was just an odd choice to me. So I, yeah, I really wanted to know what you guys thought about it. It made Al look dumb as well when, uh, yeah, fair enough, they, they managed to keep Al and... 
Chrissy apart. But at one point, Sam does say, do you know the name Chrissy Martinez? It sounds really familiar. And by this point in the show's history, in the fictional history, Al has admitted he is in love with Tina. He is in love with Tina. Yeah. And yet he doesn't know that Tina is short for Christina and she grew up around this time in this location. You would have thought something would have clicked. Yeah, he says in this book, he's like, (laughs) I love the wording of this, that he's afraid that another marriage is on the way. Like, he's like, oh, no, I think we're going to get married. You know, like, so he's admitted that he's loved her. He's at this point where he thinks she might be wife number six. Um, and <laughs> but then again, I don't know. He doesn't remember some ex-wives names, so maybe he just doesn't commit his wives to memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did get all five named in this book. Yeah, I forgot that they named the second wife in this one. Yeah, and I think that that's just Barbara's invention, is it not? Yeah, I don't think they they ever named her in anything else. Yeah, so it's Marta. Is that how you pronounce that? M A R T J E. Yeah, the Hungarian one. Yeah. Oh, did he? Okay, I'm, I'm checking into this. Yeah. So, so tell me, did he have a Hungarian wife? He did. That's the only thing he ever said on the show about the second wife. That was more specific. Was he? He just said, "What's her name?" The Hungarian one, and he never said her name. Yeah. And and I realize now that I, I am Al Calavici, I have no idea who his wives are either. So. I guess if I, if Al doesn't know, why should I? <laughs> yeah, the, the second the second wife. All right, everything we have about the second wife. We we learned she was Hungarian in Leaping In Without a Net. Uh, we learned she had a reputation for throwing around small appliances in Moments to Live, and we learned her name in this book. Um, Steve Slater in The Great Spontini reminds him of her divorce lawyer. All right, we're stretching now, and <laughs> Al was Al was still playing paying alimony to her. Uh, by the time of, sort of the the fifth season, so yeah, so we don't know much, but we did we did learn her name in this this novel. So thank you for giving us that, Barbara. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we'll, while we're on this cul-de-sac, there's one bit of um, apocrypha, or even you know, just something that I gleaned from talking to Ginger and maybe even Barbara, because I, I did meet her at one of the East Sleep conventions. Ruthie looms large in this book mm. uh, because it gives Al a connection to and as to for unmentioned, I guess, stepson. Yeah, which yeah. was Ruthie's son named Nate. And it was, for whatever reason, I don't know why, um, both Ginger and Barbara were under the impression that if any of Al's marriages would have worked post-Beth, they felt that Ruthie was was the best candidate. There was just a closeness that they felt that Al had with Ruthie, and that's why Ruthie and, and her family were, you know, really highlighted in this book. And it gave nice parallels to have Al mm-hmm. go through something with Sean. But I was just curious to know if that is something that you guys had heard in other circles, because aside from the books, like I said, I, I barely remember anything about Al's wives if, if, once you get past Beth. So I'm curious to know if that jives with your estimation of his relationship with Ruthie. I mean, she's the one that they, he says in uh, Another Mother that he never really realized how much family meant to him until her. Mm. Which I guess this kind of adds to. Uh, so I guess if you're thinking about like before the timeline uh, change at the end of the series, past Beth, I think Ruth was probably the one that seemed the most stable. That maybe he sabotaged himself. It says in in the bo- this book that uh, he cheated on her with one of her painting students. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's the one that seems because she's she, they they never said anything about her throwing appliances or anything. That's uh, 
the second and fifth wife both did that. Uh, Sharon was the one that mothered him, the fourth wife. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess she's the one that probably has the most flattering depiction <laughs> past <laughs> Beth. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like this whole adding Al's stepson is a huge bit of lore to add to his character in this book. Him having a stepson at one point, a stepson who later died, like, that's that's kind of heavy. I love it. It seems unlikely to have never come up before now. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, that's the problem when you're playing in something that's had over a hundred stories by this point. There's, you can't add anything big in without it sticking out, but you've still got to got to be bold. And I feel like that's a, a grand tradition, I guess, that has been in science fiction for quite a while. You know, Spock didn't have yeah. a brother until he did. <laughs> Spock didn't have a sister until he did. So, oh, and those were both great storylines that everyone really <laughs> I'm loves. Just saying, I'm just saying there's precedence, so both before and after. Yeah, classic character, Cybok, everyone loved. <laughs> I love Cybok. That's that's a hill I'm gonna die on. I love how stupid Cybok. <laughs> so Matt, Matthews, he's brainwashed because he gave Cybok his pain, so he 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 doesn't know yeah, any I better did. at this point. <laughs> I did. Cybok released me from my pain. That's why he loves Star Trek V. He gave Cybok yeah. his pain, and all of a sudden, Star Trek V was great. <laughs> Star Trek V is a good film. What are we on about? Oh uh, my god, I, I smell a this, fangent this is a topic here. For a fangent? Yes, this is definitely yeah. a fangent. Put that in your calendar. The Cybox special. Yeah. We're, we're just going to talk about Star Trek V for a whole fangent. Oh my I god. Up for that. That'd be hilarious. We're going to call it the Cybox Slapdown or whatever wrestling issue. <laughs> the Cybox Spectacular. Right, right. So Donna and Sam have got a cat called Fermi, or at least in Sam's imagination. Oh my god. He's fantasized. He remembers Donna in this book, and he uh, he imagines them being <laughs> together in some other version of things where he didn't ch- jump in time or whatever. He comes back, and they have a cat named Fermi. And guess where Donna is in this book? With her mother. Gone. Yet another author is like, get out of here, Donna. Writes her out. <laughs> I love how many people are like, no thanks. <laughs> I mean, she is mentioned, so at least she exists in this version of the timeline. Well, she was mentioned in the last one, too, but she wasn't uh, married to Sam in that timeline. She ain't gone. She's forgotten, but she ain't gone. Or she's gone, but she ain't forgotten. She's with her mother. And my favorite excuse for writing someone out of a story is, so-and-so is with their mother. Because it's such a, like, <laughs> stereotype. <laughs> It's a running joke I have in my Baywatch videos. Where's Hobie with his mother? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're getting away from the whole Nate thing. I wanted to explore that a little bit yeah. more. Because I know Sorry. it got dark, though, because what else are you going to do? Al, we know canonically he doesn't have a stepson. So if you're going to add that stepson, you're going to have to kill them off before the end of the story, you know? And in this case, he's just a memory. Well, he could have been, you know, once he got divorced from Ruth not his stepson anymore and maybe they grew apart or maybe he just felt like he couldn't mend the relationship after he divorced from his mom because he he cheated on her or whatever they could have but i don't mind they went this route with it it's just it's a heavy thing to add uh but it added some interesting layers with uh with alan sean because you could tell he definitely was remembering nate and thinking about this uh as he was Mm. uh speaking with him 
And that's where I want to commend Barbara the most for this, because we got such a nuanced and layered portrayal of Al here. He's still the Al we know and love, but we add this sort of somewhat tragic backstory. And then this budding relationship with this smart kid who's in the waiting room asking Frank questions, who Al is the only one this kid trusts or is willing to at least try to trust because he's not a therapist. Kid's been going to therapy his whole life. He knows all their tricks. He knows all of, all of their, their moves. So... He really um, takes to Al because Al is different. Al seems to be straightforward. And this awakes in Al so many things that as a man of a certain age, and I'm sort of creeping up towards that age, I'm not quite there yet, who never had kids. You think about what might have been. You think about where you are in your life, especially now if he's contemplating marrying Tina. Does he even want to be a father? Would he be any good at it? Is it something that's even feasible for him in this moment in his life, in this reality that that he lives? And being with Sean really sparks a lot of this stuff. It dredges it up and it makes him examine it in ways that I think were so compelling for the character because it's just, it's just good. It's just good fiction. I, I don't, I really, really enjoyed that part of the book. If you can't tell, I, I don't know if I'm going overboard into gushing here, but it was just such an interesting wrinkle, you know? Oh, it's great. Yeah. To me, it gives Al more depth. This is the kind of thing where, you know, we have with, I know I've said it before, and I think I even said it in the Disco Inferno episode, but with Pulitzer, that story enhanced every other Quantum Leap story I watch from now on because it gave a great background for Al, and it gave some compelling stuff, you know, so I, I don't see his Vietnam stuff the same. Now I see it through the lens of Pulitzer as well. To me, that's all part of the universe. I feel like this could be that too, because I, I just find it interesting. Yeah, if you think about when Al was talking about he didn't think family was important until Ruth, until then, uh, and you consider this story canon, it does add more to that. The fact that, you know, it wasn't just extended family, it was a stepson that he really cared about. In this book, he has uh, a handheld game that belonged to Nate that he kept because he was going to fix it for him, but he never did fix it. And then Nate mm. died. And so he gives this game to Sean to fix up. And that's something that's meaningful for him because, you know, that's something that even though Sean can't take it with him, you know, he could like ruin it if something else could happen, you know, but he gives him something that really means something to him. Yeah. Mm. I, I felt the fact that Sean really couldn't fix it because it was just warped and broken. I, I don't know if that strayed into a little bit of heavy handed allegory for me. I mean, it's like, oh, you see, you get it. You get it. I mean, I, I, I don't know. That That's one of the parts that I felt was just a tiny bit clunky, but it still works. I liked what they got out of that and the conversations that we had surrounding that scene. I just felt like the irreparable part of Al's past. Okay. Sean can't really fix it, but at least he's making Al acknowledge it, right? So right. it was just that concrete symbol, I guess you needed to say, get it, get it, you know? So, <laughs> okay, I got it. I like it. So <laughs> I don't know why yeah. I have a, I, I guess maybe, yeah, uh, it's just, it just could have been a little bit more subtle. That's all. A little bonk bonk on the head to quote Mission Log. No, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I didn't think it was like overly whatever. But uh, yeah, I like that Sean also reminded him of him a little bit too. Not just uh, Nate, but reminded him of him. Um, he and Ruth grew up together, apparently, in Chicago, I think is what it says. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, so- Also it, new. Yeah, they grew up together, which adds like a lot more depth to their story. And uh, yeah, it was them and a bunch of other kids 
and a bunch of them did not get help. So that's he relates to Sean, he relates to all the other kids on the leap as well, because he wants to see better things happen for them. And it was a wonderful way, I think, that Barbara filled in Al's backstory about how he stopped his wanderings, how he finally started on the road towards the Al that we know. He ran away from the orphanage uh, at 15, and then he saw a World War II movie with John Wayne, and John Wayne was in the Navy, so in the in the movie, and so he decided he was going to join the Navy, but he was underage, and the recruiter helped him with his education. And I feel like that was one of the sort of defining um, themes of the book that Barbara set out, because we have a very definite scene with Tina where she says, this is the demarcation point from everything I was with all this, you know, her, her and they, they framed it in, in terms of her parents' divorce and her accepting the fact that that past is gone. But she decides very definitively that no matter what... Ki- came before. At this point now, this is where the future begins. This is where I become who I become. I don't know what that's going to be yet, but this is the point. And I feel like we got that part with Al too, with the Navy recruiter. And I felt it was a nice way to jive the themes of the two stories together. So especially since it's it's Tina. I mean, creepy 11-year-old Tina, but still. (laughs) (laughs) There's some parallel there. So, I mean, that being said, I guess that that gets us back to some of the kids' stuff. And Allison, I know that it, it's not something you were keen on revisiting and, and, and you skimmed over. But I got to be honest with you. When I, I think maybe it's because I recently, for um, one of my first podcasts, I reread It, which was about a bunch of kids, The Losers Club, mm-hmm. and Stranger Things popped into my head. So once oh, yeah, I, those we, are both very good. And we got these yeah. this ensemble of kids. I sort of got that vibe. It has nothing to do with like I don't care about <laughs> kids. I just this particular story. I no, just no, I know. Feel like revisiting, <laughs> but I just I'm, I'm I'm I guess I'm relating why I got more engaged than I thought I would in the beginning because I've been primed over the last um, recent my recent history with 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 media and stuff, both books and TV, for stories that involve a group of kids. So it kind of felt that way to me, and I think when I first read it, that was not a dynamic that I had appreciated as much or at all because growing up with 80s movies i guess what do you got the goonies and this ain't no goonies you know and it mm. felt more like it felt more teen and more angsty and more breakfast clubby you know and it still is that way there's still plenty of teen angst to be had here but uh i, I don't know i just i i have a different headspace about it now and I, I got a little bit more excited of course they didn't go on any grand adventure or hop dimensions to the underground or the underneath the, the upside down right the upside down so hmm. unfortunately <laughs> this is more like one of those uh inspiring like uh underprivileged group of youth that that meets a, a teach that turns it all around but in reverse right like so <laughs> yes. like, like they're all gifted kids it's all going good but they st- got to stop them from going down the bad path yeah yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it is interesting, you know, they're, it's not going down that route of like, you know, everyone's a, a gangster or they're going like, oh, yo, teach and throwing spitballs or whatever. Like they are a good group of kids that just go down this bad path because they're not nurtured. Like they're not educated in a way that or uh, given things that interest them in ways that keep them stimulated, that keep them wanting to to learn and grow and uh yeah, I, I was surprised that they didn't use more of Sam's youth in this story as someone who was uh, insanely smart and grew up in a small town that can't have had that many like great 
gifted programs. I mean, like, uh, he's, they say in the book briefly, you know, he did all right and why he did all right or whatever. And, like, apparently in the 50s, America was rich and that's why he was fine or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, he might have related a little bit about, like, yeah, you know, when he's on the farm milking cows or whatever, it's not really helping stimulate his mind in a way that, that his mind works. Yeah. Yeah. And it would have been interesting to see them maybe go into that a little bit more instead of talking about how he was nurtured during his childhood and that whole thing where America was rich then and we were pouring money into special gifted programs because we wanted to, you know, to, to excel. We needed to beat the Russians. And then once that stopped, it all went to shit. But it would have been nice to see some – there are still seams that are going to show. Like you said, Allison, he's out there in that field milking a freaking cow. He must be bored off his ass. He must just be out of his mind with what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. I feel like it would just be hard to, like, find things to keep his brain going just by virtue of, like, where they were and what the time period was and all that stuff. Like, I don't know. I just feel like it maybe would have related a little to the situation. Yeah, that, I had not thought of that. Thank you for bringing that up. That is a great missed opportunity of this book because you have kids of Sam's ilk who he can relate to like he can relate to nobody else, really, when you think about it. And they kind of ignore or write that entire thread away because I guess it's not something that Barbara was interested in exploring. Yeah. And I mean, Al's explanation, I feel like was more Barbara getting on a soapbox talking about what was wrong with education in the 80s, I guess, when she was going to school. I feel like that's where the where the book it like veered into preaching a little bit. That felt like dialogue in the show, though. They would do that quite often on the show. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't know, felt like when he talks about the environment or something on the show. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it's in keeping with the show, but it's part of what took me out of the story. He's putting things in historical context, I think, as yeah, well. Yeah, it just, it just seemed to me to be like, um, okay, this is the really important message that we need to get through. And we're going to do it as an uncharacteristic data dump from Al in one scene. I don't know. I mean, and then get on should with they that. have... Uh... <laughs> Should they have written a scene where all the characters stare at the camera and they have an inspirational uh, narration about it? Or <laughs> that, that's a way to go too. Would have been too much. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, either way, PSA is a PSA. <laughs> if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, <laughs> it's a duck, baby. So the fact that it took me out of the book, I think, says it all for me. Anyway, I don't know if you guys even noticed or picked up on that, or even cared if you did, but. Oh, oh, that was fine. Yeah. Oh, I like that Sam was scared of going to the principal's office because he'd never been sent <laughs> to the principal's <laughs> office before. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of cute Sam and Al stuff in here. But yeah, yeah, I love that bit. And there's also lots of great references to just little things from stuff uh, throughout the show. Like even just like seeing, a, I think it was a sticker or a poster for King Thunder. Like, mm, that yes. was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are a lot of little things. And I did like that thing with Sam going to the principal's office and it being just like this scary thing for him. It, it reminded yeah. me of, yeah. <laughs> of a throwaway line in Jimmy when he's going to talk to the guy about getting a job. And, you know, he's. I was worried because Jimmy had never been on a job interview, but then I remembered neither have I. <laughs> I love yeah. when they throw things in like that because it's just like you'd think like what – guy that age has never been to a job interview and it's like oh of course he's never been to a Sam, job interview yeah. it's like all the things that he knows versus all the things that he should know but doesn't know it's just interesting i mean i guess not every kid's been sent to the principal's office but it's very funny that a man in his like 40s however old sam mm -hmm. is at this point is just like oh no i've been sent to the principal's office <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, like, by the time he was this age, I mean, I guess he was still in high school, but he was like, you know, by 16, he was in college. So, I mean, he never really had to deal with any of that kind of stuff. No, and I have to think that by the time he graduated, he was sought after, you know, he had his pick of where he wanted to work based on who was courting him because he's a genius. Well, I don't know because he, um, his first big break was, uh, was Starbright, right? Like when Al helped him get that job. So I, I I always kind of wondered about that. Like Sam didn't seem to have anything like that going on before then, but I don't know. I think they see, and I would say it's his big break because that's the project that he chose and it sort of helped put him on the map. But I think he would have had his pick of any number of a dozen fellowships or think tanks or other projects that were eager to have his brain. That's just my headcanon for it. So that's like that throwaway line in Jimmy actually did a lot to fill in who Sam was for me. So sure. There was some pretty good lore stuff in here too. I mean, the chief thing that that I picked up on that we'd never heard before was that um, Sean is in the waiting room and he's saying that he's feeling like electrical impulses in his brain or something like that. Yeah, but I thought maybe he was just wondering if he felt that or like making it up. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that was supposed to be a solid thing that was happening. Yeah. Or if he was just trying to get information. He said that he was feeling shocks from leaping so residual shocks Mm. and he was wondering what it was and he was having trouble sleeping and they did explain it somewhat um in the course of the story because al talks to sam about it and i forget how they they resolve it but it was just an interesting thing if he wasn't lying then what does that mean you know because he said it's electrical right it's electrical so and when we see leaping i think that was just his way of trying to get information Ah, you think? I think he was trying to manipulate them for like he's just like it's electrical, right? You know, I think he because he was smart enough to hotwire his way out of the uh, the waiting room, which no one else had been able to do. So he was a pretty smart kid. I think he was trying to get information. But for him to call it electrical, and I guess in universe we have Al knows what a leap looks like, and Al doesn't know what a leap looks like, right? But <laughs> it's distinctly electrical for all of us watching, right? It's this surge of blue sure. energy that is tingling yeah. and electrical and flying off like lightning, and uh, it would be an odd choice for him to say it's electrical, right? Unless there was some, even if it's just subconscious on his part, there was some memory of the process. That's the way I read that. We didn't get anything this time about like the leap void. Or or any of that stuff. Yeah. So there was no like them passing in in the void, <laughs> which <laughs> which I think would have been interesting. But uh, hey, that's just me. I'll write that into my next quantum leap story if I do. I just thought it was Ooh, I yeah. thought it was an intriguing twist for him to say that. I feel like even if he doesn't know it, even if he is being manipulative, and he could be, there's still maybe a, a kernel of truth there, even if he doesn't realize it. So it, I just thought yeah, it was a, a nice touch. A nice touch. Uh, can you guys tell me what the explanation was for his anxiety dream that involved uh, Al being this, like, cyclops or something? Nope. Isn't that where your book cut off? Yeah, my, my book, was, I didn't have those pages, so what what was the explanation? I have thoughts on this, Matt. What about you? Yeah, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I have those pages, but it, I just, <laughs> yeah, I didn't see a deeper meaning. Oh, okay. Well, please go right <laughs> what, ahead. Yeah, what was it? What's the deal? So, I mean, the book is called Odyssey, right? If you're familiar with the Odyssey, Odysseus lands on the Cyclops' island and uh, the Cyclops tries to kill them. 
So, I mean, so the Cyclops is the bad guy and figures prominently, even though comically, in the opening chapters of the book, right? And they're doing this whole thing about humor from Homer is what the Olympics of the Mind competition is about, right? So right. they're doing this whole Odyssey pastiche. So Sean has the Odyssey on his mind. And I guess the main villain being the Cyclops, Sean is having this anxiety because he's getting close to Al. And he doesn't want to trust anybody. Because he's projecting his, his father onto Exactly. Al. And he doesn't want he doesn't trust he doesn't right. trust right. anybody okay. at all. Not just his dad, but the therapists and his mom's an alcoholic. And he just feels like mm. everybody's manipulating mm -hmm. him and trying to quote fix him without even really getting to know him if they don't just abandon him altogether. So the fact that he's getting closer to Al, it's making him subconsciously very worried that he's going to give Alice trust and Al is going to betray him. And that's why Al it right, takes right. on the okay. Cyclops in the dream because the Cyclops is the bad guy that tries to kill you and eat you. And in the dream, I think Al eats Tina, right? So that's weird. 11-year-old Tina. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he's, he's, I think that's what he's worried about. He's worried about being vulnerable. That's another thing that I think was a great theme of this book. And it, it jives, of course, with that YA angst. It's just fear of vulnerability. And you get a lot of that from Sarah, too. There was one wacky scene. It's the first time we see Sarah home alone because they had this chapter with little vignettes of all their home lives. And Sarah's like sitting on her bed, like almost having a panic attack and saying that she's tumbling in some empty void. Like, so Sarah's got some real major issues here. And then we never pick up on that. But it, it's just like, she's obviously feeling the most vulnerable of all. She's the lone wolf. She doesn't want to get close to anybody. And that, again, that's a theme that, that they pick up. I think that's more of where it strays into young adult territory though. And I, I think that the resolution of the book was having at least some resolution to these feelings, having the characters become a little bit more confident. The only ones that we don't really get that with are Pigeon and Johnny because, you know, they're just like the dude bros. Um, even though they're the nerdy dude bros, you, you know, they're comic relief most of the time, right? And, uh, or, or the sage advice from Pigeon or whatever. I mean, he was like the Eddie character to me. We're going to go straight on it. I mean, he was Eddie from it. And, um, I feel like the, the Tina and the Sarah stuff were much more fleshed out in, in this aspect of being vulnerable, of, of, of choosing to let go of vulnerability and, and to become a new person. And it, maybe it's because Barbara is a woman and maybe, you know, she's remembering her experiences as a young woman and she's able to better extrapolate all of that stuff onto the female characters, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, she did flesh out Sean just as well. But yeah, I mean, I guess like there, there was a little bit more about the, the girls on the, the leap end. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, for all that, I thought that Sean was still super interesting. I liked the way that she gave him an analytical mind. He finds himself apparently flung into the future and doesn't panic about it. He's just sitting on, on a little table in the waiting room and, you know, going over his yeah. options, like really methodically laying out, okay, if this is the reality, then this, and then this. And I found that very engaging to begin with because it wasn't just another thing where, oh, uh, the, the leapy is catatonic and we need to drug him <laughs> and no, Sam's in trouble. And it's oh, just- Oh yeah, yeah. This is, I think, the the most interested I've been in the the stuff back at home in one of these books because I felt like the stuff that happened there was interesting enough to fill the time spent on it. For sure. And, it, you know, all the stuff with, with Sean and Al was interesting to me. I thought there was lots of little details added to the other characters that I thought was interesting, too. 
Like, I like that Verbena was going on a date with Eddie from accounting. <laughs> Eddie from accounting. <laughs> Eddie from accounting. And I'm like, what's Verbena's date life like? I mean, it's just, I like that it, you know, they were giving a little bit more to her. Yeah. I like that they, they talked a bit about uh, Gushy. He's got like a a vacation cottage in Calgary. Mm-hmm. No, that was that was Beaks. <laughs> I believe that was Beaks. Beaks does? I thought yeah. Gushy did. I wrote down Gushy. I thought, all right, well, I could be remembering wrong. I was reading quickly uh, an hour ago. S- someone has a vacation someone cottage Someone has a vacation in cottage Calgary. in Calgary, yeah. Maybe it's Gushy and Beaks. Maybe they do a timeshare together. I don't know. Oh, you think Gushy and Beaks are also dating? <laughs> oh, Gushy's dating everyone. Gushy's dating everyone. They talk about his bad breath, but he sees with everyone. Gushy's got game, yeah. man. <laughs> Because yeah. she's got game, except for with Sammy Joe. He's creeped out by her. I love, love, <laughs> love that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Is this the is this the first instance of Sammy Joe being in one of the books? I I I made a note of that as well and thought it can't be, but all right, if if you thought that as well, then I feel it is. Um yeah, it's kinda interesting in this uh version of Quantum Leap. <laughs> uh <laughs> everyone at the project remembers when sammy joe just first appeared no apparently, no like, that no memory is going to not everyone beaks specifically everyone said who was in the room everyone who was in the room and gushy says weren't we supposed to forget about this by now and i thought it was very telling um and and Beeks said yeah i guess it'll happen eventually i thought it was very telling that nobody seemed to remember donna just appearing at some point after Starcrossed, right so i guess eventually even if they were in the room they probably forgot about it, and the only one who still remembers is Al, given the structure of the time travel and the changes at the project that we've seen in the book so far. So I feel like Barbara kind of took that and made it her own in, in kind of a neat way. I just wish that we had gotten more than one scene with Sammy Joe actually speaking, because the fact that Gushy <laughs> is completely freaked out by her, I think is gold. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. it was interesting. I kind of, kind of wanted to know a little more um, if it had relevant things happening like i don't want just a bunch of scenes with sammy joe that have nothing to do with anything but uh yeah i would have liked a little more there there's this whole running bit too with these like three uh engineers i think who are brought in in tina's stead while she's on vacation and they're like arguing with each other and annoying everyone and then that sort of dropped and then doesn't isn't brought up again after a while hmm I don't know. Maybe it was just meant to be like some flavor, some things happening there. Okay. So behind the scenes, um, and I'm not saying this is that, but what I'm saying is there's a character in my book, a very specific character who's named because she won the right to be named. I, I think they auctioned it off as part of charity where you could be written into a quantum leap book. Oh, at the East Leaps, I think that was part of like the charity auction. Um, so oh, okay. there's a there's a character in my book, Allison Wadawa. And she's a real girl. And um, oh. I spoke to her and she was a great kid. I thought she's probably, you know, like 30 now. But uh, at the time she was, you know, she was about 15 and she was she was terrific. And I wrote her into the story in a big way. Everyone was really surprised. And I said, well, I need a character here. So why not use her? And I think that maybe these are people or at least one of them that or they're just friends of Barbara's who she wanted to put into the story. Mm. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe yeah. that was that seems more likely because it's not the most flattering depiction if it was someone who like won the right to be named. But <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, my whole joke and I guess we'll talk about this in six years when we do foreknowledge um, was like, why have a character that hey, we're close. 
We're close to full knowledge. We're six, we're six books away. We're not going to get to it before the new season of QL 2022, or in this case, 2023. Yeah, but we did the novel a year or so ago. Hmm. But but my, my point is, why would you want to have a character that says, hey, do you want fries with that just because they want to walk on? You know? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Make it into a character. If there's a character in a book, you should have a reason. It's like a Chekhov's gun, you know? Sure. I just, uh, I don't know. It just felt like the characters were in like the first half of the book and then stopped doing anything. So it was just kind of weird. Yeah. And actually, I was glad that they dropped it because it seemed like it would be annoying. That to me would have been tedious. Is it, What is this measure of a man? We got to discuss whether or not Ziggy is alive. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, yeah, it was kind of pointless. Those guys and, uh, and the Sammy Joe thing like didn't ultimately go anywhere. But I guess, I mean, on the flip side, it's better than like, the project just seeming like it has nothing going on. Like, I'd rather it seems like there's, like, a little bit of life there. Everyone's got some sort of little detail going on. Uh, they even throw in that Tina was uh, Pulse Communications until Al promoted her. So we also learn a little bit about why her job changed. Mm-hmm. Mm. And they also referred back to Prelude in here, if I'm not mistaken, because they talk about Al hiring Tina or picking her up from Vegas. Right. Yeah, that was a Prelude thing. Yeah, where they met her in Vegas and she became the architect. I think actually uh, there's in a – what the stupid cowboy one. How the test was won. Wasn't there also about meeting Tina in Vegas in that one? Yeah, that definitely came up there. I don't know if that was where we hired her or is he just meeting her in Vegas because he's got a hot date with her. I don't remember the context of the story. I, I think he just said that's how they met. I think he said they met in Vegas in that episode. Gotcha. So you're saying that Ashley then ran with that and made it more of an official meeting with her as a potential employee as opposed to, oh, you know, she was just she was just at the, the craps table. Yeah, I think in Prelude, they met at a, they met at the party in Prelude at the Christmas party. So that that Prelude changed what it was. Yeah, much different connotation in the sense that. Even if it was in Vegas, if the party was in Vegas, it was still a professional thing where in my mind when Tess was on and he says, well, I met Tina in Vegas, it's he was just on a trip to Vegas and she happened to be too. And they like met at a bar or at the crab table or something like that. But it was just a random thing. Right. So makes much more sense the way Ashley does it because why would Tina come back to the project otherwise? Oh, I just met her in Vegas. <laughs> so let's make her pulse technician. Because mm -hmm. they're the most unprofessional project <laughs> in the universe. They just do whatever. You saw Alan the pilot taking the other Tina just straight there. Nobody cares. <laughs> they're all too busy having sex and stealing money. <laughs> Xeroxing their butts or whatever. Xeroxing butts. <laughs> I wonder if uh, if Beaks and, and or Gushy got their joint uh, Calvary cottage from all those extra zeros that Ziggy put on their paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> it all ties together. Verbena and Gushy is the rarest of pairs. <laughs> is there a ship name for Verbena and Gushy? No, I'm saying that's in in the fanfic community. You call it a rare pair. You know, if it's one that has like nobody ships it, kind of thing. It's just <laughs> so I doubt there's ever been anyone who's written a Gushy Verbena fanfic. But if they have, it's maybe like one story. <laughs> Would it be like Gabina? Hashtag Gabina. <laughs> Bishi. I like Gubina. It sounds Italian. Gubina. Hey, Gubina. Gubina. It's my Gubina. It's like my Guma. Gubina. <laughs> I'm all over that. Oh, that would be hilarious. Oh, challenge accepted. We should write some. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm kind of interested in the idea of these two together. <laughs> it just seems very unlikely. So all of you creative listeners out there, PO Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705, <laughs> send us your Gushy and Verbina 
fanfic slash fic ship fic yeah they're at their vacation house and then they get snowed in and in calgary Ooh, in sexy calgary. sexy <laughs> <laughs> oh you okay guys. Uh, going back to the book i do have a few more notes um is this the first time uh canonically they've said that sam helped al to dry out well i mean define canonically well, I mean, like, have they alluded to it anywhere, or we just kind of assumed that? Because I'm not sure if they ever really said, like, you know, specifically that Sam helped him dry out. I mean, I guess Sam didn't go out to do it, but Al credits him for it. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of us kind of read that into the conversations in Play Ball, but it's, I never thought about it, but it's not really specifically said until now. I mean, it's yeah. just sort of, yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people assume that, and I've certainly yeah. read, like, fanfics that say it, but I'm like, in canon, has it ever really been stated? I'm not sure they ever really say that Al did dry out. I mean, I guess you can infer that, but, I mean, he, he seems to have some relapses occasionally. He has his moments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right in the pilot, he's got a relapse. I feel like he's got a relapse in, was it uh, Seymour? Well, anyway, Sam accused them of being a drunken Seymour. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam uh, hurt his feelings by saying he th- he thought with the bottle in that one. But yeah, I just thought it was it was kind of interesting because I I don't know if or when this was outright stated anywhere. So it hasn't been before now. All right, so yet another thing that Barbara helped cement, I guess. Yeah, there you go. And I wonder if that was you know she was just picking up on the I guess the. Accepted lore, right, of of the fan community. We we discussed that last episode with Disco Inferno. So the accepted excuse for uh, Disco Inferno not being on streaming services was because music right issues. We have no idea if that's true. Well, it's not really a a lore thing. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying, it's <laughs> there are certain things that go on in the fan community that people just take as given, right? So sure. I think there's been a mythology built around Al and Sam and Al's alcoholism, and I feel like that's an established sort of behind the scenes fact that fans just accept. I don't know that it's ever been specifically on screen and I don't know if this book helped to cement that or if this book is just capitalizing on something that fans had already theorized about. Kind of like a horror's first name. It's now canon, but uh Niota was just a part of the books. I think Sulu's first name yeah. too, Hikaru Sulu was was they just really in the never books. say their first names on the show or the movies? No. Never. Just Chekhov. For whatever reason Chekhov never? is the only one with a first name. <laughs> That's so weird. Hikari was canonized in Undiscovered Country, but it took that long. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, Neota, I think, was canonized in the JJ verse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Isn't it cool, though, when stuff like that becomes canon? You know, like it's like fans just accept it as the truth and then finally it's confirmed in something. What, you mean like when Janice Calavici pops up in some slash fiction and then the uh, producers of the new series go, yep. That's the name we're going to use. <laughs> if that's really what that was from, the person who wrote that is like a, a shit in bricks somewhere. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so I, I guess so it happens. Funny. So, but it's good because it not only does it, if, you, if you're not familiar with those things, right, with, with whatever we're talking about here, if you're not familiar with those little niche fan theories, to read it, in a book, you you become invested in it. You're just like, oh, that's a neat that's a neat way to look at it. And if you are invested in those things, you, it cements what you think you already know. So it's a win win for a writer either way, right? Yeah, right. 
I, I thought there was the, the kind of cool part too, where um, Sam is dealing with Sean's uh, drunken mother, and uh, he's getting kind of upset about it and uh, saying some harsh things about her. And uh, Al says, "Like, well, I'm glad that you didn't have that kind of judgment on me." And uh, he says, "Like, well, I didn't need you to be my father." And Al seems really upset that he says that. Mm. Like, you know, mm. it hurt his feelings that he, he was saying he didn't want him to be his father almost. Like, I don't know. Yeah, and I think that says more about Al than it says about Sam. Maybe Al is seeing him as sort of a, a son to him. Maybe more of that, uh, he's thinking about Nate some more and that's just on his mind. I don't know. Yeah, mm. and I feel like that reveals that Al, no matter what, they're always best friends, but there's also a paternal aspect to the way he feels about Sam. And Sam basically said, you know, I don't need you for that. And even Al says he has his own dad, you know, like he gets it. But this, this could also be like, I was thinking now that we talked about Seymour and that cut down that Sam does of Al, where I don't get my, my judgment from the bottom of a bottle, you know, to tell your story walking, basically, he says. <laughs> Had Sam not been Swiss cheese and remembered his relationship with Al, even though it wasn't really that established on the show at this point, I don't think he ever would have said that. That Swiss cheese, Sam talking, maybe remembering some things about Al out of context without the full weight of the true relationship and bond they share. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. Mm. And maybe that's something like that going on here, too. Or maybe Sam is just so distracted by what's going on with the woman that he's got to dry out. He does seem to throw it out a bit carelessly and then realize that he's done so and apologized to him. So yeah. I think he does kind of, he just wasn't thinking when he threw that out there. You know, and maybe it's, it's, it's such a subtle thing because Barbara says something to the effect that, um, because they're trying to, to, to dry the mom out. Right. And right. they have this yawning day ahead of them where she can't drink and he has to supervise her and they're working on it together, but he doesn't know what the hell to say to her. And he says something mm. to the effect of uh, debates about science or engineering or music. Let's do it like long detailed debates, but I, I, he was never any good at small talk. And I feel like maybe that's part of, him being sort of a genius in the sense that he can't relate to people very well, even though he does. He's Sam. He's magic. He can do anything and he can turn anybody around. But I think it's a much more realistic take on a character who is someone of his IQ not being able to relate very easily to more mundane things. And maybe this is a, a byproduct of that. Maybe he can get snappy and careless because he's, he's above it all. Yeah, I think he just gets caught up in his own brain sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a much more succinct way of saying it, Allison. Thank you. But you know me. <laughs> Why use three words when I could use 30? <laughs> <laughs> it's the writer in you. Yeah, I've always kind of had canon that about Sam, though, that like leaping really taught him about how to relate to people. I feel like someone who is that much of a genius would have trouble relating to people because he's just so much smarter than like the people his age and then he's around a bunch of adults and then like he's smarter than them like how do you how do you relate to that you know mm. yeah yeah um the other reason that nate might have died honestly is um there was like certain caveats when i tried to write for star trek they said like you can't add like a captain to the enterprise that has never been a captain to the enterprise oh yeah you can't kill off sam 
because in my first draft of foreknowledge, Sam dies. Um, spoiler, we'll talk about that too. But um, <laughs> they said, no, you can't do that. You know, I think John Peel came up against that as well. Uh, you can't kill Sam. Um, so it might be if you want to add like permanent family, you have to take them away by the end of the book. So it might have been like she wanted mm. to do that, have Al have a stepson, but the powers that be said, nope, can't do that. Yeah, that's interesting. That that seems likely. Yeah. Hmm. It would have been great, you know, maybe they were estranged and maybe they were at odds. It would have been a great little coda to the book for Al to go and seek Nate out to reawaken that part of his life now that he is is invested in it again or now that he's come to terms with it. Now that he knows it's been written into his character. Right. (laughs) There is that. (laughs) But isn't that true of every episode, every book, (laughs) every piece of fiction ever with ongoing characters? Matt, I wanted to ask you about this uh, because I know you're a stickler for this kind of detail. How's uh, the timeline work in this this book as far as... (laughs) Does it add up? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, there's the <laughs> the stuff about Al's wives is always a bit tricky. He he does a lot in a short space of time. Um, because we don't know much about Tina, that all fits in okay. There's one moment within the book where Sarah's death changes year. Um, within a few pages of each other, but that's by the by. I mean, they mention Al and Sam's ages in this book, but it doesn't add up. Like, Al's 60, which would place this in around 1994, because he was uh, born in 34, I believe, was Al's birthday. Yeah, do they? I didn't pick up. Yeah, they said he was 60. Yeah, he says he's 60. They say Sam's 40, so it would be 93, 94. Uh, but the stuff with Dr. Ruth and Sammy Joe would place it in season five. And Sam says it's 99 and 2000 or 2000. So, yeah, which is also fine. But um, I didn't notice the, the the mention of their ages. Yeah, that's clearly off. You're right. You know, Allison, I noticed that, too. I don't really know Al's age. I, it's always nebulous to me. But if he would have been, what, then 64 at that point, 60, 65, given his date of birth. And when he said um, he was looking at a 40-year-old man, I kind of just thought he meant like a guy in his 40s. That's how I logicked my way around that. Because even right. I know Sam is – he's older than 40. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Just didn't add up. Does not add up. Barbara, <laughs> you have some explaining to do. <laughs> Which is really odd when she's got some pretty obscure stuff that she's thrown in there. And she's she's obviously a fan. It's, there's some well-researched stuff. So that's quite incongruous. Oh, yeah. I think it's near impossible for anyone to remember every detail about Quantum Leap. And even if you do, uh, there's so much contradictory information anyway. She was probably just going with what the actors' ages were. Like, you don't think about the fact that there's this shift in the the times that it's sets mm. it took place a True. little bit in the future and all that. So True. That's probably what happened. I just I find it interesting, so I'm just pointing out things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There is the suggestion this episode takes I know you said ninety nine, two thousand, but it when Al talks about Nate's age, it's very clear that this is set in the year two thousand. Because Nate was born in 79 and would be 21 by now. Okay. But there's numerous other bits of evidence, some of which hasn't come up yet, but some of it has already been in the show that we are still in 1999. Right. Well, we know in the show, uh, canonically, it was 99 around then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mirror's Edge will firmly establish that the show ended in 99, but that's not happened yet. 
I don't know if Mirror's Edge firmly establishes anything, not not in this little heart of hearts of mine. So we'll, we will have that discussion. <laughs> okay. I look forward to talking <laughs> about that. It's an entirely different discussion, <laughs> my friends, but we're not talking about Mirror's Edge. We're talking about Odyssey. Do you guys have any last uh, notes on Odyssey that we haven't brought up? I was just skimming through my notes now, and one of them made me go and add some Pop Tarts to my next uh, shopping <laughs> delivery because I've, I've not had Pop Tarts in years. I have not had a Pop Tart since my senior year of high school, so you're right on that score, sir. Yeah, yeah, same. But uh, Chrissy lives on them, so I'm, I'm going to try some Pop Tarts later this week and see if they live up to my memory. Demons and Dragons as well. Demons and Dragons reference. Oh, yeah, Demons and Dragons. I do like with the Pop-Tarts thing that, like, um, Sam doesn't like that it's not nutritious, and then Al's like, no, it's great, it's like, oh, lots of good stuff, well, it's got fruit in it. (laughs) (laughs) What I love is Sam is such a stickler that it's not nutritious, but then he drops the freaking Pop-Tart on the floor, and then he picks it up and eats it anyway. That was gross. (laughs) Sam, you grosso, you and your salmon and coffee or whatever. And he was just talking about how the kitchen is dirty and he wanted to wash the floor, but he didn't want to disturb the mother any more than he already had. And it wasn't even like the three second rule, man. That doesn't exist. You're a scientist. Mm -hmm. You know better. (laughs) Good old floor pop tart Sam Beckett. That's going to follow him forever. We're going to read other books and be like, yeah, but he eats pop tarts off the floor (laughs) and then has gross mayo sex scenes. Stuff. <laughs> and then goes out for a heaping helping of salmon with a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, weirdo Sam. Yeah, a couple <laughs> things um, that I wrote down. Uh, first of all, I like that Al plays Atari with Sean, just because yeah. I like imagining Al playing Atari. <laughs> It's very yeah. good. To me, that's that's very realistic because Atari was just one joystick and one button. Even I can play Atari. Anybody yeah. can play Atari. It's not like these days yeah. with the nine billion buttons on these controllers. Yeah. That old man <laughs> rant over. Go ahead, Allison. <laughs> yeah. The last thing. Um, when I read the acknowledgments, uh, I knew I instantly liked Barbara Walton because uh, she thanked a Quantum Leap Usenet group. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's where she she's like i got all my info from them I, I if they didn't it's not because they didn't know anything if i missed anything it's because i didn't ask them they were great i just love that you know this was when the internet was still pretty early uh and that yeah. was how you know people would get together and the fact that a bunch of quantum leap fans got together on usenet and and she's like hey i'm writing a book can you help me out and they're like oh hell yeah they probably gave her like they're like you put demons and dragons in there put king thunder that'd be great <laughs> just a, a great coming together yeah i was not computer savvy i had no idea that stuff existed it would have been a great help when i was trying to do research for my own book but eh, what are you gonna do uh, you did fine I, no, I just I just knew specific people that I could bother who had the videotapes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we haven't really touched on the because we focused earlier on about the the twist at the end. That kind of for me that was overshadowed by the not quite twist, but the well, they've never really done this before. The whole thing of uh, Sam being instructed to hold on to the um, the leaflet as he's leaping out, so that he can effectively pass a message forward to the leapy. I love that. Right. That was really cool. Yeah, he's holding a Navy flyer. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, I, that was really cool and unique. And you see Sam always trying to change the Leapy's future by changing everyone around him. This is actually giving Sean some agency to hopefully change things for himself by reminding him somewhat of the discussions that he's had with Al. So, yeah, I really like that. 
I enjoyed that too, and that gave that gave rise to that uh, that typo in the box tree edition that I think I discussed on an earlier show, uh, because he said if only he could leave something behind, some small reminder, and it turns out to be that navy poster. But I think in the box tree edition it said some small reindeer. <laughs> what? <laughs> He could leave one some small reindeer. (laughs) I know I've already discussed this on this show before, but it's apropos. Now we're talking about the book, all right? So if I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that one. It's just delightful. It's it's just delightful. I love it. (laughs) I got a whole list of typos from the Box Tree version. I didn't pick up on that one. There's like Verbena Banks... There's a sphygmonometer, which, to be fair, I, I'm not surprised that was misspelt. Um, but yeah, I missed the reindeer. That's so good. This is one of the more unfortunate books for box tree errors. So that does not surprise me at all. Yeah, and you know, my my one last bit of notes is I really liked Barbara's pop culture references in this because it was all the shit that I watched when I was that age. She talks about Chrissy watching the Dukes, <laughs> and everybody's watching Voyagers on Sunday night. I loved mm-hmm. Voyagers; I thought it was the greatest show. <laughs> so, but she also brings up some good books. She uh, Lord of the Flies, and she brings up uh, Narnia. She brings up Huck Finn. So we have some of oh, the same man, same yeah. reading tastes, uh, Barbara and I. I definitely had to read Lord of the Flies for school and uh, watch Mm -hmm. a few filmed versions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's classic for a reason, I guess. Shows you just (laughs) that if if you want hope for the future, that book ain't it. (laughs) Yeah, I I just remember watching a filmed version where it's like they had the famous scene with Piggy where he dies. Spoilers: Piggy dies in Lord of the Flies. He he gets squished good. (laughs) He gets squished, and there's like just like a paper mache head. (laughs) So funny to me. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like if you're spoiling that, it's like saying, oh, oh, by the way, Sam Beckett never returned home. It's, you know, Lord Look, of the Flies is even older. If you're, you can't be mad about being spoiled on Lord of the Flies. <laughs> exactly. You probably had to read it for exactly. school Exactly. If you anyway. didn't read it in seventh grade, that's on you. You didn't do the assignments. <laughs> <laughs> I never read it. Oh, oh Piggy man. dies. Yeah, Piggy dies. Oh. Piggy is the porkins of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now I'll never bother to read it. Thank you, Alison. <laughs> sucks to your specs, Matt. Mm-hmm. Sucks to your asthmar and sucks to your auntie. Does anyone have any final thoughts on Odyssey by Barbara Walton? Uh, Alison. Uh, if I sound like I was down on it, uh, there were certainly parts I wasn't paying too much attention to. Um, I, I don't want to make it seem like I didn't like the book because uh, I did like how the characters were written. I thought it was a solidly okay story. And uh, I think there was some good stuff in it that I, I really enjoyed. I liked how the characters talked. Uh, just the story itself for me uh, didn't grab me very much. Matthew Dale. Yeah, and very similarly for me, I I think I probably sounded quite down on it in the the opening thoughts. Um, It's not my kind of story, but it's well written. It was a breeze to read. And the the stuff at the project, uh, the the stuff with Alan Sean is just fantastic. So it's definitely, it's worthwhile. It's got some good bits in it. Um, It's just, just happens not to be my kind of thing. All right. And the fact that it's not like your kind of thing or the kind of story that we're used to seeing in Quantum Leap, I think, or anyway in the book so far, is something that 
really made me enjoy it more because it wasn't just another family drama. It wasn't just another leap I didn't give a crap about. I really got to like the kids. I really got to like the leap story more than I've liked the leap story, I think, in any of the books so far. So it's got, uh, you know, bonus for that for me. And on top of that, Barbara knows Sam and she knows Al and she knows the universe Mm -hmm. and she writes in it very well. Like she is comfortable. She is swimming in a warm pool here. She, you know, she's playing to her strengths and clearly she is, you know, formidable when it comes to to her quantum leap knowledge and i think she applies it very well it's never heavy-handed it all seems organic and yeah i think it's one of the more enjoyable books in the series because it's both deep and light and funny and i think the best balance of the books we've read so far so uh i really enjoyed it and uh, i would recommend anybody to read this one i think if you have not read any of the novels this would be as good a starting place as any even though they reference the mcconnell verse so <laughs> <laughs> but very slight references to the McConnellverse. So good job, Barbara. And um, yeah, I'm happy that we got to talk about this one because I did not remember it fondly. I remembered it, oh, it's the school kids book, you know? I don't want to read this. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad I reread this. It was really good. So, mm, good. so if you have read it and you don't remember it, well, give it another chance. But uh, I say uh, this is so far one of the top of the range for me personally. So, all right. I think that closes the book on our discussion of Odyssey by Barbara Walton. And this is usually the point where I throw to a break or throw to feedback or throw to new Patreon uh, subscriber or something, but we really don't have anything this time. So that being said, write us. Tell us what you think about Odyssey, about any of the other novels. If you want to do so, there are many ways that you can reach us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can drop us a line at P.O. Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705. Remember that Verbena Gushy uh, Gubina slash fiction. We need that. <laughs> Call us on the it phone. It wouldn't be slash. It's not. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. Oh, I, I want slash. I don't know the lingo. <laughs> I think slash is just same sex, right? Oh, is it? And slash fiction is, is when it's a same sex relationship. Oh, I thought it could be either. All right. Okay. okay, so if you're if you do have slash fiction, I'd be interested in one or the other character's backgrounds that we didn't know about. Gushy L fan fiction. <laughs> yes. Any there fan fiction <laughs> would be appreciated. I want to see that PO box bursting with any and all fan fiction slash or otherwise. You can also reach us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Twitter at quantumleappod, on Instagram at quantumleappodcast, and you can watch all of our videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash the quantum leap podcast remember you can always go that extra mile as well and support us on patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast just remember we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast and speaking of upcoming episodes matt tell us what's next well, next we're going to be returning to our revisited range of season two episodes with the Americanization of Machiko. Bye. 
So I guess Sam's Popeye, huh? <laughs> We're ready for some baseball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I put out the poll for Choose Our Next Sleep like I do every time. And uh, fan favorite, Doubt Shalt Not, was still a strong second. So we <laughs> might be skipping the order. We're but- getting close, though. We're getting close. Actually, Machiko knows Doubt, Thou Shalt Not, much more than Disco Inferno did. I really think Disco Inferno won by one vote. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I guess Machiko is a more of a more of a, a fan favorite episode based on you know the the thirty or so people that vote on Patreon anyway. <laughs> is, isn't that the episode that the guys on Fate's Wide Wheel don't like? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember why not. I don't listen to the other podcasts, not because I don't like them. I just never want to be influenced. Everybody that talks about Quantum Leap does so better than I do. So if I listen to other shows, I am invariably going to parrot some shit that they say because it's so smart and funny and on. I don't want to put myself in that position. <laughs> That's the only reason I don't listen to them. So Sam Dennis have a, a problem with Machiko, huh? Yeah, I cannot remember why, but it definitely. Uh, maybe because they don't like the Japanese because they had to fight them in World War II, right? No, nah, so- that's probably it. It's probably <laughs> it's it. Be- it's about too many memories. <laughs> Sam Dennis, P.O. Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705. <laughs> send <laughs> send your manifesto against Machiko there, please. We will read it on a Patreon <laughs> bonus show one of these days. Yeah, so. it'll just be the beginning of the podcast is just like shuffling as you're unrolling the scroll <laughs> that they've sent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Machiko. Um, spoiler alert, I, I remember quite enjoying the episode, so I look forward to revisiting it. I haven't seen it in many years, so and I'd like to see what you guys think of it. I have one specific question, Matt, that I can't wait to ask you, but it will have to wait until next <gasps> time. So everybody on the edge of your seat with bated breath, but... I, I will be. Uh-huh. So you keep that thought, hold that thought. Until next time, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. Surely you could do the audio version of your book. Yes, I'll just start reading aloud into my microphone. I'll yeah. do all the voices. I'll yeah. even try to do like British accents, which I'm really good at. Yeah. Are there British characters in your book? I, I can make them British. Why not? It's my fucking book. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's generally if, if it's a book written by an American and there's not characters sitting around having cups of tea with their pinky fingers stuck out, I assume they're American. Are you ready, Matt? Here I go. Here I go. Oh, bloody hell. Governor. <laughs> call, call blimey. Wow. All English people are cockney. <laughs> 
I thought we'd got Malcolm McDowell on the line or something. That was amazing. <laughs> I thought I sounded very public school. I'm sorry. Oh, do tell, Governor. <laughs> okay, I'm wasting time. All right, let's get going. Got to get my microphone voice on. <laughs> oh, Elvis! Oh, Elvis and Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> <laughs> we do Mel- Memphis Melody again. No, let's hey, not. Is this, is this one of these books we really don't want to talk about, and that's why we've managed oh, to waste let's ten minutes? Buckle the already. fuck down, people. Okay. All right, let's do All it. Right. Welcome. <clears throat> See, now my voice gives out on me. Maybe some the universe is telling us something. And in the dream, I think Ali eats Tina, right? So that's weird.